folks. Welcome to Enough Y'all, the Real Talk podcast for intersectional allies and social justice academics. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, social psychologist and Appalachian academic with the passion for truth-telling, centering the soul's goals, and talking with my hands. If you enjoy the show, check out my course on white anti-racism, as well as free resources at drkimcase.com. Simon Howard, known professionally as Sci-How the Doctor, is an emerging independent hip-hop artist, director of the Psychology, Racism, Identity, Diversity, and Equity, or PRIDE, lab, and an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Miami. He's a first-generation college graduate who completed his undergraduate degree at San Jose State University. Dr. Howard went on to earn his PhD in social psychology at Tufts University. Using experimental methods drawn from cognitive, perceptual, and social investigations, his research aims to understand and address contemporary racism. To this end, he has conducted research on the interpersonal and contextual influences on racially biased perception, judgment, behavior, and mental health of both historically advantaged, for example, white people, and disadvantaged group members, for example, black people. His recent work can be organized in three broad themes. One, the role of religion in maintaining racial hierarchy. Two, the influence of race on perception, judgment, and behavior. And three, the consequences of exposure to vicarious racism for racially stigmatized groups. Musically, his music is an auditory extension of who he is as a person. Multifaceted, multidimensional, and authentic. Sci How the Doctor's debut album, PhD, Poetically Handling Doubt, is was released September 25th in 2022 and is available on all streaming platforms. Simon, I'm so happy, so, so happy that you said yes to this request. I saw you in June and thought we definitely have to get together. So before we even get into all your scholarship and the cool things you're doing, would you give the listeners a little uh, taste of who you are in terms of your intersectional social location, whatever you want to share? Oh, yeah, perfect. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. Uh, Definitely honored to be a guest on this podcast. So, yeah, my name is Simon Howard. A little bit about myself in terms of social identity and my positionality. I would say that I'm a Black American cisgender heterosexual male. I also identify often as a Pan-African, and I do that because ideologically that's where I think I'm aligned. And what that means, or if I break that down a little bit more, it's a political and cultural identification that basically just states or communicates that I think that there's a shared fate between all Black and African people across the diaspora, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that be on the continent, whether that be in the U.S., whether that be throughout the islands, that although by no means are Black people a monolith, that we have a shared fate in the things that we experience often tied to anti-Black racism and white supremacy, and that no matter what we do, where we are located, we have a shared fate. And so what we do in the U.S. has implications and impacts on those who are in South Africa, Nigeria, that has uh, ripple effects for those who might be in the U.K., so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, ideologically um, and identity-wise, I also identify as a parent. I'm glad you talked about that. I mean, there's this this sort of collective consciousness piece, but also everybody be reminded not homogenous, right? Right. (laughs) As you said. I wanted to talk to you about your research and scholarship and i'm sure it goes beyond just that realm in your in your work in academic spaces and beyond but going a little bit back maybe like 
what was your sort of original uh, entree into research and scholarship? What were your main topics, like grad school, dissertation wise? Like what was the the first thing that you jumped into and started studying? I kind of want to get the background. Right. So we're going way back. <laughs> okay. The first, say, I've always been interested broadly in stereotyping, prejudice discrimination as it ties to experiences of, of, of Black folks. Uh, initially, however, when I started graduate school, I was working with Sam Summers. That was my advisor in, uh, at Tufts University. And my interest and our interest that overlapped, how does race influence uh, eyewitness memory and testimony? So there's this concept known as the on race effect or cross-race cross effect that basically says that we have better memory for faces of our own race relative to faces of uh, races different than our own. This has some real-world implications when we think about the number of people who have been falsely convicted for crimes they didn't commit. Yeah. Uh, so like eyewitness is already faulty, and then you add an element of race, and it gets even worse. Yeah. And so my ideas were, okay, here's something that I can study that has both theoretical implications in terms of how we process and recognize faces, right. but at the same time also has implications for this more applied and practical scenario where it's like we might actually be able to save some folks or prevent them from going to prison for several years of their life for something that they did not do. And so I pursued that for several years. I designed numerous studies. Long story short, they didn't quote unquote work. So I was not able to find a way to reduce the cross race effect. That's mainly what I was trying to do. Oh, you're trying to reduce um, it. I was trying That's to That's a big goal. It's <laughs> a huge goal. <laughs> yeah, you know how we are when Solve we solve all the start. things, I mean you know how it is when when often if you're like a bright eyed grad student, you're about to change the world or for those who who have that that orientation. Right. That was that was inclination going in that, you know, I was becoming a social psychologist and the work that I was going to do was going to help, you know, drastically change not just the field of social psychology, but also, you know, make the world a better place. And we still have these ideas. That's right? still true. Right. It's still true, but I'm just like, wow. That was, I mean, back when we had these, uh, my one study is going to undo this entire thing. <laughs> right. Centuries of. I was super of, uh, green. I was. Super I get it. Green. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Funny enough, like when I was a grad student, this is like a side side story. When when all the grad students had their pages on our website, right? So at Tufts. Was this is MySpace. No, you're not as old as me. <laughs> <laughs> I did have MySpace though. Yes. But probably for music. <laughs> I did actually yeah. have one for music uh, and a regular one. Um, <laughs> but no, this was on our department website. So oh, you know yeah. how we, oh. some departments feature their grad students and we have our research interests and what we're interested in and future plans. Everybody else's future plans was, you know, create some seminal research study, go on in the field and make a name for myself in academia, go on and be a <laughs> faculty member. Mine was start a revolution. And <laughs> To this day, I laughed. I was like, oh, wow. You knew yourself very well at the time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and being a first generation college student and really new yeah. to academia, I didn't know that, you know, putting all your cards out there may have not been the best idea initially, but I came in my full authentic self and that's how I really felt. I'm like, I'm in here to change things up. I mean, this is the deal. This is why I wanted to talk to you because, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. This is something I've struggled with quite a bit. You didn't know that that would be a potential hmm, way for people to be like, maybe not so much choosing Simon for the thing, because look at his webpage. 
but at the same time, it draws the right people to you. Right. So there's this interesting paradox where it feels like you are maybe, I'm just going to speak on my own behalf, putting things out there that can limit your options. And even well-meaning mentors and also peers are like, maybe you want to take that off there. Right. <laughs> maybe you want to tone it down, but maybe I don't. And then it turns out, especially with decades to look back, which I have, that's exactly the kind of thing that ended up being the path, making the path right? versus decades of having to not be who you are. Right. So instinctually, you were like, I need to put this on there. <laughs> right. So people and, know what's up. And I will agree with you that throughout my process, and I, and I reflect on my graduate experience, graduate school experience often. Because I think often for many of us, for some people, it was traumatic. I don't, I don't know if mm. I would describe my own as traumatic, but I would definitely say it was very mentally taxing. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things I've done mentally, I would say, ever. Right. Maybe will be the hardest thing. We'll, we'll, we'll see. To TBD. But I would do it all over again the same way. So I'd be my full authentic Black mm. self. I'd be unapologetically Black with the knowledge or understanding that this will create some friction with some folks because they're not used to that. I think often in right. these spaces, um, additionally, you might lose out on some opportunities because people often want a black face, but not a black voice. Yeah. And so there's those things that I think I was already aware that was going to happen, but it was probably a little more than I had expected. So I know this, it was going to happen, but I will say this, what I loved about Sam Summers and still to this day, he never, he never tried to give me advice to stop being who I was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was never any conversations about you should take this down. Or, yeah. Again, as I said, as I reflect on that more now, like where I'm at, I was like, okay, like I love the man even more because <laughs> that's not everyone's experience with right. their advisors. I think it was an important side path um, yeah. that we just took because the people that I'm trying to support, I guess, with this podcast um, that I call social justice academics, these are constant sort of internal battles, and sometimes they're with external sources as well, right? So so then I want to say this, what happened? What happened and what brought about the avenue for you to start incorporating hip-hop specifically into your scholarship? Was there a moment or was this a gradual? Give us a little tour. Oh, yes. So coming back now to the, to the I think, initial question or the question <laughs> you asked previously, after all my failed studies oh. with the cross-race effect and trying to find ways to improve eyewitness memory. I then transitioned to focusing on research on the relationship between religiosity, specifically Christianity, and ways in which that maintains uh, ideologies that maintain social, social hierarchy, specifically mm-hmm. more racism and white supremacy. So I was really focused on how people conceptualize uh, religious deities, mm-hmm. supernatural agents such as Jesus and God, and if that was related to attitudes that maintain racism, white supremacy. That's what I started transitioning to doing uh, during my my like second half of my graduate school experience. And that's still what I do often today. Like that's one of my main lines of research. Mm -hmm. However, with the hip hop, I've always been interested in hip hop as a fan of hip hop music, as someone who's been writing and rapping music since since high school. It's always been something that I've been interested in. And while I was a grad student, the thing that I used most to sort of cope, right? Like, how do we cope with everything that we're juggling in graduate school, right? Self-doubt, external, internal doubt, 
feelings of alienation, isolated, being the only black grad student for several years, I turned to writing, writing like poetry, verses, so on and so forth. And that was a way in which that helped me, right? I was always interested. In fact, if you look at my dissertation, my acknowledgement page, right, it has the usual suspects, your advisor, your committee, your family, things like that, right? My grandmother, my partner at the time. But I also listed all these hip-hop artists that helped me through the the process, right? Yeah, J. Cole, Nas, Dead Prez, those were some of the key folks that helped me get through (laughs) grad school. And it's for real. Without them, I'm like, I don't know if I would have been able to to deal with, with all the uh, the pressures. So always interested in hip hop. My first hip hop study that I did, or that incorporated hip hop, was actually a stereotype threat study. Okay. And I was interested in in whether the type of lyrics that people are exposed to could induce stereotype threat. And the idea is that a lot of work on hip hop and social psych had focused on like stereotype activation. And I'm like, if certain lyrics and subgenres of hip hop can activate stereotypes, could this induce stereotype threat? And I had the idea for years. I was thinking, you know, on my way to take the GRE, <laughs> I was listening to, I don't know who it was, probably 50 Cent or somebody at the time. And it's somewhat violent, misogynistic. And I go into the GRE. And as I'm in the GRE, this probably didn't help my, my performance. I'm thinking about, did this music that I was just listening to impact or will it impact my performance? Here's where being a social psychologist this is a little too meta for your GRE time. Right. I'm like, this is not what I should be thinking about. So even if it's not the music that's impacting me, my thoughts about how this could be impacting me might be influencing my, <laughs> oh my God. So I was just, so th- that initial thought I had was from back then. So here's a question to insert. Yes. Did you ever, did you have a thought like, oh, well, in grad school, this wouldn't be something I'd be allowed to study. Did Did it go out of your mind or was it like, I need to suppress that because it wouldn't be considered legitimate scholarship or did it what why didn't it become part of your scholarship maybe I think that was part of it as well at that time when I was thinking about that idea Mm -hmm. I wasn't I was very green and hadn't seen a lot of scholarship on hip-hop at that time then as I got into grad school and transitioned it just didn't seem like this was a topic not worthy of study I would never frame it that way but from my perception of the academy yes would yes. people value this type of scholarship? I put it off, but I, you know, I was focusing on this other work. And then as I was transitioning into stu- the studies about religion, I was like, I need a side project that I'm super passionate about. And that's when I started collecting data on the stereotype threat study. And I was encouraged by Jessica Remedios because part of the reason why I also wasn't going to do that study was I had to recruit Black men who were in college and at Tufts University. It's a very predominantly white institution and then black men on top of that, trying to recruit them at that institution when the overall black population is 3%. And so it was very few. So it was difficult. Are you now, would you say now that this has become a stronger part of what you do? Yeah. So I will say, oh, you said teaching. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's like two part, two part answer coming. Okay. So, so first, yes. As I said, like the, the hip hop aspect, I've always wanted to find ways. I have a couple studies that I've done um, where I've just been sitting on data. I think that's our story. We sit on data sometimes for a while. I'm like, if I had multiple me's to write all this data uh-huh. up, my life would be a lot easier. Who's going to figure out how to clone people? That's that's the next podcast. I mean, the problem I mean, is then every single Simon would still be doing way much for each Simon. 
So it would still be a problem. You're right. Mm-hmm. We we'd still be sitting on more data. It'd just be more data to sit on versus right. writing. But yes, yeah, so I, I have a few studies and I wanted to shift the, the narrative a little bit because mm-hmm. most of the work in, in psychology that has examined or looked at the influences of hip hop has been negative. Right. It's how is this influencing sexism? Does this impact people's interest in, in academic achievement? Negatively impact it. Right. Negatively uh-huh. impact uh, ag- academic achievement. <clears throat> okay. My initial thought for the stereotype threat study actually was not to see if it induced stereotype threat. It was more, could this act as a buffer? Mm-hmm. Because a socially conscious hip hop music often is counter stereotypical. And could this be a buffer to stereotype threat? Also, because a lot of socially conscious hip hop affirms black identity. Mm-hmm. So with this affirmation, could this then be a shield to stereotype threat, which are studies I'm also going to be running soon. Uh, but I was like, let me see if this induces it first. And then I can show also this other narrative is that, yes, it can induce stereotype threat, not because rap music created these stereotypes. These right. stereotypes existed long. Because there's some very deep conditioning that no one can really avoid, right? <laughs> right. And it, yeah. and but can we have a protective factor? So socially right. conscious hip-hop content typically is a subgenre of rap where the content is focused more, or it can be focused more on political topics, affirming Black identity versus the content focusing on materialism, uh, mm-hmm. sex, drug use, so on and so forth. Yeah, collective action, even hope. Yes, hope collective and action, hope, mm-hmm. social justice oriented. So that's socially conscious. I love this so much because what, what I want people to see is that there are other models, I guess, and you don't have to go through your entire academic career squishing down the things that you're that your own interest and background and social justice views of the world might be interested in doing, but you're not you, but the collective you might be worried they wouldn't be accepted and validated as actual research, right? Kind of what you hinted at before. So this is really helpful. Part of what we're talking about is how do you bring your full self to the academic job and the academic career? And so that you don't have to have separate selves and it's it's a little bit more of an integration, right, of these spaces and not having to do quite so much performance management. And yes. I mean, there still is that. It's always going to be there. No joke. But bringing your full self to your scholarship and teaching, you know what it is really, though? Really bringing your full self into your teaching. And that means bringing in the social justice, various topics, but also like for each of us, what we know from our own people, I guess, is what I'd like to say. And not having to keep that separate is what I would call the soul's work. Right. And bringing that to students so that students can feel like, oh, this is also my space, right? From what I can tell, hip hop studies seems to be connected to your soul's work. So I uh, did want to give you a chance to say if there's any connection with your teaching. Right. Yeah. So I definitely agree. As I said, it's always been a major part, I would say, of my life or throughout my academic journey, hip hop and either listening or creating that music is you know been a part of who I am and so trying to think about how I could bring that into the classroom uh, especially given that I'm like social justice oriented and hip-hop has a deep history of being the voice of the voiceless mm-hmm. right so it's it, it's been very tied and connected to a voice of trying to challenge oppression yeah uh, and so I, I I'm fortunate enough to teach classes like the psychology of racism psychology of prejudice 
And so what I've been trying to do is like, well, how can I incorporate this music and music in general, not just hip hop, mm-hmm. but uh, one of my, you know, like I said, biggest influences is hip hop, but other forms of music into uh, teaching. And so when I've started teaching psychology of racism, one of the, cl- one of the assignments that I have is having students create playlists, a psychology of racism playlist that nice. speaks on topics that we discuss in during the semester right mm-hmm. and it can it can be anything but they have to communicate and articulate how is this song related to these theories or concepts that we've been discussing mm-hmm. uh, and you know first time I tried this I was not knowing what to expect but the students blew <laughs> me out of the water I'm like wow because this the, the level of sophistication mm. where I'm like okay I like sat back. I'm like, I'm doing something right. Because <laughs> Meanwhile, you just wanted them to find good songs for you to listen to. <laughs> right. I'm like, I need something new for my playlist. Right. So this but, is going to be my no. assignment. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was amazing in that the way that they were dissecting songs yeah. and lyrics and a lot of the songs were hip hop. Cause again, given the genre mm-hmm. tied to, to social justice movements, change, collective action. But there were other songs as well from all genres that were included on these playlists right. and the way that they were tying and articulating how certain songs, for example, some were, were like simple. Right. Uh, so like Macklemore has a song on white privilege. Right. How they were talking about how that was connected to Jim Richardson's articles. They were talking about system justification theory and how Lauren Hill's song on I think it's called Black Rage. If they're tying that to to lyrics specifically. So here we have John Jost and mm-hmm. Lauren Hill in conversation <laughs> with each other because of my passion about hip hop. And mm-hmm. we brought that in the classroom, right? And then they had to present to, to each other. Um, and so we're also, students are learning from each other and tying these songs to these theories. The other thing I did was I brought in spoken word artists mm-hmm. during uh, the semester. And I had the spoken word artists all speak on a topic of, of racism yeah systemic i wanted it to be not individualistic mm-hmm. systemic but they had free range where i couldn't dictate somebody's art but i'm like mm-hmm. this is the overall <laughs> theme i'm going for so they came in right so i had formerly incarcerated individuals talking yeah. about their experiences with with racism so prison industrial complex we touched right. on uh, a black woman came in she was talking about her intersectional experiences with race and gender mm-hmm. uh, and they're not using these words per se but from the students they're making these connections and like, oh, we're recognizing that this is because she's both black and woman. Yeah. And what she's articulating in these verses is speaking on that. And it was powerful to see it in real time because after everyone performed, then we were in conversation with each other. The students were in conversation with the artists and you could see this like transfer of knowledge happening in real time. And it was just, it was powerful. And then having the students then reflect and write on it afterwards and just reading what the students wrote. And one woman in my class articulated how powerful it was to see someone who was formerly incarcerated in the classroom talking about their experience because their father was formerly incarcerated and they had never seen anything like this. The humanized people who have been incarcerated in, in that manner. And I was like, again, not expecting that to have that impact. And it's, again, like, because of my passion to hip hop, bringing that into the classroom. And of course, I also had to drop a few bars. As I well. bet. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we should all just acknowledge that, that this us coming together was uh, because I had the fortune 
of witnessing your a very small amount of minutes of a performance <laughs> at the start of a conference presentation, which I thought, this is exactly it. This is exactly it. There's no reason it has to just be slides and a person talking, right? Like right. I was like, yes, this is exactly what should we we should be doing is like blowing up what the idea of a conference presentation is in the first place, right? That's and it wasn't insane. a hip hop conference. I'm just saying, a, you know, <laughs> a non hip hop studies conference. So, and I was also no offense to anyone who was going to give a talk in that session. I was like, please don't stop. But then it switched to talking. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hearing you talk about your teaching, I want to read you a line from a song that's called "Came a Long Way" <laughs> by a. Uh, do you say Sihal the doctor? Yes. Is Sihal yes, the, the, the artist's name. Check Sihal out your um, local streaming services. Um, but it goes something like this. Wanted to, wanted to be the professor that I never had. And so when you're talking about your teaching, right? like think about Simon the undergrad. Can you imagine being in a course like that? Man. How freaking as, powerful. As an undergrad, I can't imagine it. No. Now that I, now that I am that professor, it's like, oh, wow, like. If I was in that class, I would have been in my face every day. Yeah. I'm like, yo, how did you, you <laughs> how are you doing you this? You would have been that one. <laughs> like, oh yeah. my gosh, lose my number. The student is driving me crazy. <laughs> I would have been in my face every day. Like, <laughs> how are you doing this? Like, is this even possible? Uh, this is a, a shameless plug. Yes. Is Sai how the doctor, uh, it's my first name and last name is cut in half. So we got Simon, it. Simon, Sai, yes. <laughs> and, you know, I'm on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music. Title, yes, title, Amazon, you name it, I'm on there. Perfect. I have my professional Twitter, which is Dr. Simon Howard, and then I have my <laughs> artist Twitter, which is Sci How the Doctor. Also, I'll put it in the um, the show notes, as they say. And then, actually, I had a couple of other lyrics I wanted to mention. It actually goes on. So, it wanted to be the professor that I never had, a black mind that could never ever gentrify. And then you said, "What it meant to be a professor and stay authentic, even though along the way many got offended." So like there's a lot that comes back to this idea of there's very limited models in the academy, right? We don't have a lot of access. It's still very homogenous, even as the small amounts of diversity seem to happen um, within the academy in terms of the faculty representation. It's still who gets accepted into that club to represent the diversity and right. what kind of behaviors are they expected to perform? And do you want to say anything about I would love for you to talk to us about being a professor and trying to stay authentic to your own true self, whatever that may be. I mean, this is not an easy thing. Right. Yeah. I think early in my academic career, when I, so when I was a professor, I would say, when I was a grad student, yes, fully authentic. When <laughs> I entered the, the academy, we have this like looming shadow over us called tenure and you're mm. sort of running scared. In fact, I remember I the, the dean of faculty affairs, he, he told us to run scared. And I oh, was like, damn, that's like stated it explicitly. Message. Yes. Okay. I'm like, if I wasn't nervous to begin with, right. I'm definitely now knowing who I am. And I'm like, <laughs> I think this was also at the time where faculty who were, who were teaching social justice oriented topics or talking about racism were getting like docs. They were getting put on lists. Right. I mean, that's not over. Yeah. 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 Still, still very much happening. So at that time I was like, there was a lot happening. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I know how I want to talk about these things in classrooms. Even that classes that aren't psychology or racism. That's right. I'm still going to talk about some real ish when I'm in like social psych, when it's a bride. I'm like, these, when we talk about conformity, I can talk about how 
there's these theories of conformity that when we talk about good cops or bad cops, how the result is the same. And that doesn't necessarily matter if they're conforming to, to the norms of the culture. The norms of, yeah, right. right. So I was like, I was bringing those things in. Yeah, our, we should come back to that because then they're so surprised and shocked and then they get really mad about it being part yes. of the content. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> you could check my emails my first year. That first year, I was really tiptoeing the line like, oh, I'm trying to be authentic. but I'm also trying to survive the system. Right. Ripple any feathers and don't want to lose my job. Right. Because that was also in my ear from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if family were concerned, friends, I was very vocal, like on social media platforms talking about. Oh, yeah. There's that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people were concerned. Right. And it's coming from a place of love. They just yeah. want to see me thrive. And I'm like, OK, like. And so my first year, I think I'll sit on But then after that, I was like, you know what? It is what it is. I cannot. So you just had to make a conscious decision. <laughs> yes. I'm that like, you're just going to do it. Yes. I'm like, I got to do it. I got to be me. I, yeah. I was being myself, but it was like to a lower percentage. You had to turn like, down a little bit and you didn't like it. No. So I turned all the way up <laughs> the next year. So I'm like, no. I okay. Like- so year one. Okay. So this is the year I want to focus on for just a second. So, right. I'm so glad we're doing this. So you turned it down. Let's say to 90%, 85. Right. Let's say 85. And then everyone was like, but still, though, like, we're worried about you. But also, like, there had to be something going on with you that you were like, I can't do it at 85. I'm not happy. I can't sleep. I don't feel like I'm me. This is right. really taxing. If they don't like it, I can't I can't stay like this. I mean, I don't know. Like, what what was processing for you that you're like, no, I can't do the 85% or whatever, whatever right. turned down version it was for you? It was it was mainly that, like, I wasn't as happy as I thought yeah. I would be now in this position, right? I was like, this is what you've been going hard for and grinding for. That's for true. So long. Now that you're in this space, you've met this quote unquote destination. I was like, man, the whole reason why I wanted to do this was that I was going to be able to be more authentic, or at least that's kind of what I thought where I'm like, okay, I'm in a space of higher learning. I can, you know, bring in topics, the scholarship in, and we're going to talk about this in a real authentic way. And I want to speak this truth, you know, truth to power. And here I am sort of like not speaking with my chest. And I'm like, no, I got to change. I got to change something because this is not good for me, my mental well-being to continue to move yeah. in this manner. And so then I was like, yeah, I made that decision that I'm going to move in my full truth. I think when I did that, things got better, like all, all around. Like One, I was happier. Mm-hmm. And I would say this was probably with experience. My course evaluations got better. There were still some people who were upset, but those were the outliers, you know, and they were very vocal. But other than that, I think students can recognize authenticity and they value that. If you if they know you're coming with your full authentic self and you're passionate about what you are teaching, yeah, then I think that's what they respond most to. What seems to be lost among the people who may see what's happening and think it's too far outside the box or it's going to cause too much disruption or people are going to be upset there's this whole there's a really much bigger group of students whose lives are being transformed by not only making these new connections and like having this whole other cognitive and learning experience but also sort of um if we're talking about caring about equity and sense of belonging and the academy being a place where students from all kinds of racial and ethnic and cultural backgrounds want to be and thrive 
then right. we have to be doing the kind of work you're doing in the class. Right. I think I, I, th I think about that too, where we, we often talk about diversity. Right? As long as it doesn't change anything. Right. That's true. And, and we talk about inclusion, but I was like, all right, we, we talk about it in this way, but what does that actually look like? And I'm like, that looks like a professor like me doing what I'm doing. Yep. Not just, again, like I said, like a black face in these spaces right. where it's like, oh yeah, this is diversity. But, but as you said, who gets access to these spaces? Who's being allowed into the space? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, if you ain't allowing me in this space, I'm about to kick myself into this space, <laughs> kick the door open. But now, <laughs> and we here. And I feel like there's there's other folks as well who has a, a similar mentality or same like thought process where it's like, yeah, we need wider representation, not just what fits the mold of, of how they're defining this diversity and who's yeah. allowed in. Um, so maybe we need to, uh, I mean, you know, it's a lot of times it's about the framing right. and representation is important, but it's more behavioral, right? It's representation yeah. with the behavioral change of how we operate. What the kinds of things we study, the kinds of voices that are brought through is beyond diversity, right? It's about the counter narratives and, you know, even your perspective on like how could our particular discipline study rap and hip hop? Well, it could be uh, completely opposite of what's been done so far <laughs> in right. terms of thinking about what the questions that are being asked in the first place, right? That is why we need people who are going to ask critical questions about power, not just show up and be on the committee and be the person they can put on the website, right? We, right. It's got to be a whole other level of thing, but I don't know that institutions, institutions haven't recognized yet that that is, that's what moving forward looks like. I don't, I don't know if they ever will. What do you want the Academy to know about hip hop? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that it's a transformative musical genre um, relative to many other genres is still in its infancy. So I think there's a lot that can be done. Mm -hmm. um, I'm focusing a lot on the way in which hip hop can influence collective action intentions and behavior and be used as a vehicle for social change. But I feel that people are also looking at this in the counseling and clinical fields too as, mm -hmm. as a form of of therapy, like music therapy, it can be therapeutic in the way in which music has the ability to shift people's moods. And it's one of the biggest genres now, you know, not just in the U.S., it's global. I was noticing there's some minors in terms of academic uh, degrees, if that's a thing we care about. There's some minors at some various universities now in hip hop studies. I know that UCLA just um, had a big piece come out this this year about their really big move they're making in hip hop studies. And can I just tell you that Chuck D is going to be their first artist in residence? And I oh, saw wow. that and I about died. <laughs> I was like, what? UCLA is doing it. I don't get the sense there's much awareness that hip hop studies is even a thing in the general academy. What, I mean, what do you? I feel like there, there, there are scholars and educators who are really focused on, on like hip hop, hip hop education specifically. But I think it's probably in the field of education specifically. Mm. And they, I would say, do a better job than we have in the psych sciences and maybe some other uh, areas. But uh, there's pockets. And so they've been existing. They're here. Again, I just think given the pretentiousness of the academy mm -hmm. and hip hop being a black musical genre, all these things sort of working in tandem is not seen as scholarship in the same way. But it's here. The voices are there. But often as things are associated with marginalized groups, those voices get marginalized. 
it's kind of interesting to me because <clears throat> depending on what space I'm in, you know, being a white woman, I often find that in white spaces, there's no, there's very little understanding that there's anything such as, you know, uh, hip hop focusing on social justice and collective action and all the things you were talking about before, like a lack of awareness, because what do we have access to? Like when we're a super segregated society, it's probably, like I said, what's being played. Does anyone listen to the radio? Anyway, so <laughs> I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but it's certain, it's a certain sub, sub, uh, very thin slice of music, right? That gets put out into the universe for the masses to hear, except that now we have other ways to access music. So that's helping. But I also feel like um, in other spaces that I might be in, people don't realize that like there are subgenres of country that are extremely social justice focused. Mm. And there are subgenres of like old mountain music and Appalachian like folk music that are very social justice, you know, critiquing of coal companies, for example, right? Like these kinds of things. And then would there ever be a way for those cross genre and in some ways race and class lines of where music ends up and who thinks it's for them and who doesn't, right? But there's so many common themes that are really fascinating to me. Do you have advice? for other academics or scholars um, interested in bringing something that's cherished from their own background or culture, right? This is about how do you behave in, uh, or how do you navigate in an authentic way so that I like to say you don't lose your ever-loving mind. Um, so advice for scholars who want to bring something from their own background and culture so they can be authentic in the academy, um, but they feel like it might be rejected. Yeah, that's a big, big question, but so I think I have like maybe two or three pieces of advice. The first is, I think just do it. I like that. If you if you don't, I think the the ramifications of that outweigh if you do do it, right? And and that being tied to like your psychological well being, like how do you totally. feel, and the, the all the cascading effects that that could have on you, right? Like if you're not being your full authentic self, how's that going to make you feel? How are you going to come to work? Will you mm -hmm. be? Will you find joy in what you're doing? And chances are no, and, and those are going to have longer lasting impacts. But if you're not your full authentic self or you're not happy with what you're doing or as happy as you can be, then you're going to maybe become depressed. The second thing is when you are doing these things, I would say, and I say this for most things, build a support village. Oh my gosh, yes. If you are not supported in your immediate environment, it may not even be that you're not supported. It could just be that you might be apprehensive to building with folks that are right in your immediate environment mm -hmm. and maybe that will change over time but initially you know sometimes you're you're sort of trying to get a feel of the environment that you're in first but if you can build outside and you have people to lean on then you can talk through these ideas that you might be having or you can voice some of your frustrations with what you're experiencing in your current context and so if you have those people right and, and it's sometimes hard to develop that and it takes time but if you can work on that and be proactive at finding a village then you have people to turn to theoretically for like your entire life yeah then they're probably going through similar things that you're going to be going through over time and these things never from what i gather they don't necessarily go away it just as the longer the longer that you're in the academy they manifest into something different right? different ways yeah <laughs> right so it's still here in some some way or fashion but now you're dealing with it at a different stage in your career and it looks a little different but it's the same route at the end of the day um so that's yeah, really true with, with the right people i feel like you can get through 
through anything. And they will need you and you will need them and it will never be untrue. It's a reciprocal relationship. Right. <laughs> Very true. Um, well, I mean, you have to, you have to come to the point where you know that it's not sustainable. Right. Back to your first point and what you said you did for a year and you're like, this can't, this can't work. You know, um, we're trying to save people that year. <laughs> right. Or many, many years. Right. Um, I have more colleagues than I would like to have that spent 10, 15 years in the misery portion mm -hmm. and then, find, you know, finally like I can't. And I will say this, you mentioned mental health. I get literally physical symptoms mm. that are oh. manifestations of trying to like silence or be, be less. I think it's probably got even more consequences than we realize a long term. Right. For people, there are plenty of people who are like the academy is literally killing us. <laughs> right. I'm not. I'm not the one, but <laughs> I do. I can't disagree with it as a concept, right? So, Sai how the doctor, follow yeah. him everywhere. I appreciate you. This is this is the kind of conversation that more more academics need to be having. I feel like, and so you just keep being generous with your time is amazing. Thank you for having me. It, this was a great opportunity. You know how us academics are. We get us talking. We love to talk. So, <laughs> yeah, we didn't have any problem doing that. The problem is shutting us up. That's I know. Thank you for listening to this episode of Enough, y'all. If you want to learn more, please visit drkimcase.com to sign up for my newsletter, find free resources, and check out my 12 week course on white anti racism in action. Until we meet again, stay scrappy for truth and justice.